Let's stand together. We're going to be looking at a message I call today, The Song of Moses. I've been preaching a series on the life of Moses for most of this year now. And we come to this place, Deuteronomy chapter 31, The Song of Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot. But the gods are the foreigners of the land where they go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. And verse 22 then says, Therefore, Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel, the song of Moses. And may God then bless the reading of his word today as my prayer. You may be seated. We've noted that as Moses neared the end of his life, as God had told him, he preaches a number of inspired messages recorded for us as the book we know as Deuteronomy. They serve to give the law again to a new generation of people who had not heard it as they were entering into the promised land that God had put before them. And they were going to be at the same time dealing with the death of Moses and the beginning of the leadership of Joshua. Today our message, of course, is devoted to the song that Moses wrote and taught to the people of God. We know at least three songs that Moses wrote and sang with God's people during his time as their leader. One is in Exodus 15, and that song is a song of victory as he surveyed then the uh, death of Pharaoh's army and saw them all uh, destroyed in the waters of the Red Sea. So it was a song of victory, Exodus 15. Psalm 90 then is a song uh, that considers time and eternity. Uh, it tells us that from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. And it also calls upon us as God's people uh, to remember that verse 10, the days of our years are threescore years and ten, that's 70. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. That's the inspiration for that famous gospel song, I'll Fly Away. Yeah, there it is. Psalm 90, you didn't know you were singing Moses' song. When you were singing, I'll fly away, but you are. Psalm 90 and 10. And verse 12 then, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. So Moses wrote one song about victory. He wrote one song about eternity and time and our living in time as we prepare for eternity. The third song is our text. It is a song about apostasy. One song about victory. One song about eternity. One song about apostasy. Now apostasy is a technical term used to describe what we often refer to as backsliding. In fact, in some passages uh, it's referred to in exactly that way. It is taken from a Greek word that comes from the New Testament, most famously in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away, that's the word, apostasy, unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Other passages may not use that Greek word apostasy. In fact, it's only used twice in the New Testament. 
but still it talks about that same concept. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says, expressly, expressly says, that in latter times some will depart from the faith. There's the concept. Not the word, but the concept. Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The Spirit speaks expressly. Apostasy simply means to depart from the faith. Now, this problem must be carefully considered. We need to understand that this concept is not used in reference of people who have never known the truth of children, maybe generations of people who were raised without ever going to church, without ever studying the Bible, without ever hearing a message from God's Word. Uh, They don't watch preachers on TV. They don't listen to Christian songs. They know nothing about God except that they don't believe in Him. This is not a people who are being spoken of when the Bible mentions apostasy. It is about those people who were raised in the church who were raised in the truth, who know the truth. They've learned the truth of God. They've even professed faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they turn away from the faith. That's what apostasy is about. People who turn from the faith. I mentioned, uh, for example, uh, the fact that many young people today who are being raised in church We're being taught the truth of Scripture. They make a profession of faith. They're baptized. Uh, They're a member of this church and other church. But they go off to college. They get a head full of all the things that are being taught there. And they turn away from their faith. Uh, It might often, it even refers sometimes to old people, older people. Maybe people who have gone to church their whole life. They've raised their family, raised their children in church. They know the truth of God. They have believed it, they've professed it, they've taught it, they've learned it. But after they get their kids raised, they turn away from their faith. I mention these two groups specifically today because we're talking about the two generations that are responsible for the most uh, frequent uh, departures from the faith of those who are turning away from the faith, those who are leaving the faith in America today. The millennials and Gen Xers on one extreme, the young, and the baby boomers, my generation, on the other. See, God specifically warned Moses that Israel was going to turn away. They would apostatize. He told him very, very plainly. Now, God didn't use the word apostatize. He used a, a much more graphic word. He said, they'll play the harlot with other gods. What were they supposed to say? You'll be unfaithful to me. You'll have affairs with other gods. You'll break your covenant with me. That's graphic language God used. I bring this up also today because like Moses of all old, we stand in the midst of an expressly worded, expressly Stern divine warning about a time when many would abandon the faith. I mean, God told Moses, these people are going to abandon the faith. God tells us in the last days that we're living in, many 
will abandon the faith. In spite of their careful teaching, in spite of all the things they had seen, in spite of all the miracles that they had seen God do in Moses' time, in spite of all the work that we've seen in in our day, in our lives, and in our families' lives, in spite of all the wonderful blessings that we've received, people would turn away from God. There's an ongoing theological discussion about apostasy. Some passages seem to suggest that people who leave the faith do so because actually they were lost all along. John says this very plainly, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 29, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Some people will depart from the faith, turn away from the faith, because they never really had it in the first place. I didn't make that up. The Bible says that very, very plainly. But then we also have passages like that incredible story of the prodigal son. He was a son when he left. And he was assured that he was still a son when he came back. He was still a son. And the problem for us then is it's hard to tell the difference. Has somebody left and departed from the faith because they never really had the faith? Or or are they going through one of those prodigal son kind of times when they begin to look at at the far country and the far country seems so enticing and it looks like everybody's out there having so much fun and and, and man, I want to go out there and live it up and party it up for a while. And and, and so I'm going to turn away from the faith. Are they having one of those prodigal son experiences so that they're really a son and they're going to come back? Or have they gone out from us because they were never really of us? Which one is it? Is it one? Is it the other? Well, it's it's yes. (laughs) The answer to that is it's both. It's both. Prodigal son didn't look very much like a son of God when he was out partying in the far country. Going a different example, we think about Simon Peter warming himself by the fire, cursing and denying that he ever even knew Jesus. It would be hard to say that Simon Peter's faith hadn't failed. But then you remember Jesus prayed that his faith would fail not, and it didn't. Not only did his faith not fail, but he wasn't even disqualified from serving Jesus. Seven weeks later, seven weeks after he had denied that he even knew Jesus, we find him roaring like a lion on Pentecost and 3,000 people getting saved and baptized in one day. Yeah, his faith didn't fail. Though he had a time where he struggled, his faith didn't fail. Today, there's no question we're living a time when many people are turning away from the faith. And it's hard for us to know which side they are on. I'll never forget what one of my teachers taught me, Brother O.R. Baldwin. He has kinfolk, I think, here today or in our church family. Uh, One of my uh, teachers that he told us one time, he said, you know, when somebody drops out, I'll visit with them for a while and, and try to get them to get back in church. But he said, after a while... I'm going to start talking to them about their salvation because they may not be saved. There's no way for us to know. You see, I can't look in your heart. You can't look in mine. 
All we can see is that people have turned away. They have abandoned the faith. They're not continuing on in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. They've turned away. Are they lost or they saved? We don't know. God knows. But what they have done is they have turned away. I've got some sober news for you this morning. It can happen to any one of you. It could happen to me. But it can be prevented. And so when God told Moses, Moses, these people are going to turn away. Many, many of them are going to turn away. Moses responded by writing a song and he taught it to them. He taught it to them that day. So that by the end of that day, they could sing that song. It was in their hearts. And we'll learn more about it because we'll find it literally all over Scripture. The song of Moses. And it's all built around a simple theme. It's all about God is our rock. God, our rock. And you see that in Deuteronomy 32 and 3. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. The song of Moses is contained then in Deuteronomy chapter 32. At the end, chapter 31 tells us Moses wrote this song and taught it to them and then Chapter 32 begins with the song, and right up front we see that God is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. He's a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. It's no wonder, since these people were obviously unstable and their faith was not sound, he taught them a song about the rock. Remember, Jesus said the wise man built his house upon the rock. That's not scripture, by the way. That's a song they teach us when we're little children. Uh, But it is a song with biblical truth that Jesus told that parable that it's based on. A song about the rock. Why put it in song? Well, setting uh, words to music for whatever reason helps us in the learning process. When we read this song, it is somewhat disjointed to us. It can even be a bit hard to follow. But if we knew ancient Hebrew and could hear it and pronounce it correctly in the rhythm and rhyme of music set to chords, it would flow freely. And it would do for us what it did to the Hebrew people. It would make it a song easily learned and easily remembered. (coughs) Earlier this year, I did a series of messages on the theology of the song Amazing Grace, 250 years old. It has been associated with at least 20 different melodies, the most popular being its current form. One estimate said that the song Amazing Grace is sung 10 million times a year, literally around the world. Most of us can sing it without any music at all, without having any words in front of us. Such is the power of words set to music. Now, the familiarity of Israel with the song of Moses is evidenced by how often it's referred to in Scripture. There are at least five times in the New Testament that the song of Moses is directly quoted word for word. 
It's noteworthy that God said inspired divine truth then to music so it would be taught to his people. Remember, we're commanded, commanded in Colossians 3.16 to let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts unto the Lord. Biblical truth set to music. And we sing that to God, but we also sing it to one another. We're teaching it to our children, sharing it with people maybe who've never heard the songs, but they'll learn them. It might surprise you to know that when I was growing up, there was quite a bit of discussion about the style of music in Baptist churches. It was, man, it was heavily debated. Uh, back then, it was that old Southern Gospel stuff, that old Heavenly Highways music, <clears throat> as opposed to those churches that sang out of the hymnals uh, and, of course, the Redback books. And then I grew up in the 70s, and suddenly the revival that began on the West Coast in the 1970s sparked a whole new genre of music as suddenly worship songs or religious-sounding songs were set to rock music. I'm not sure we were even supposed to listen to that music. And we sure wasn't going to sing it in church. I'm going to tell you right now. Uh-uh. Don't you? You try to bring that stuff in church, man. You're going to get in all kinds of trouble. They're going to shut you down. <laughs> it was bad. Uh, but it was, it was, yeah. Uh. The music went on in spite of the fact that it was controversial Sooner, uh, after a few decades, it came to be called worship music, and we still had then uh, religious truth, biblical truth, then set to basically a rock music beat. But, of course, after the 90s, it was mainstream. I want to make a big statement this morning. There is no scriptural music. Music is music. Whether a song is good is not determined necessarily by the kind of music it is set to. Music is music. It's determined by whether the lyrics are suitable to teach and admonish one another with. It is the truth. It is a good song then when the truth that we are singing is in harmony with Scripture. It can be a southern gospel song and not be biblically true. It can be a hymn and not be biblically true. A whole lot of modern songs are teaching things that are not biblical at all, and we don't use them. And I thank God for Brother Bill he, in so many ways, but he's very good in his song selection for us. God inspired his truth with Moses. He had it set to music and taught it to the people so that by the end of this day, they knew the song by heart. It was a song about how God was their rock. It was a song about how that God, as their rock, was unmovable and unchangeable. They sang about how God is perfect, about how His ways are just, about how His Word is truth. And there is no injustice in God, none at all. 
Because he is righteous and upright. And that means above all that God is right. He's never wrong. In these last days, and we are living in the latter days. We've been living in what the Bible calls the latter days ever since Jesus came. We are in the latter days. We may be in the very last of the latter days. I believe we are. Certainly in these last days, God is assailed and mocked on every hand. He is denied. His truth is proclaimed to be outdated and unfair. God is called hateful. And people who believe God and who recite God's very word are called haters. We live in a day where what people believe about sex and gender has been turned into such a defining issue that even God is being canceled by today's culture. It's a day when mere... Mortals then who proclaim his truth are being sanctioned in every way possible. This is a great truth to learn. God is our rock. God is righteous. God is true. God is always just and is never a God of injustice. His word is dependable and trustworthy. God is our rock. Moses taught him a song. And the truth of this song is still applicable to us today. Our rock, God is our rock and our rock is righteous. Then they sang about, unfortunately, the rejection of the rock. And I have to think that when they got to this part of the song, maybe they changed the key a little bit, Brother Bill. Maybe they went from a positive note and a happy note and a, a, up, upbeat, kind of up-tempo, had a backbeat going maybe there, and all of a sudden it slows down and it's a mournful tune. I don't know that, but I have to think that. Verse 15, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat and grew thick. You were obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. They sing about Jeshurun. That's just a name that is applied to Israel. It's a figurative name. It likens them to a captive animal fed and growing fat. And yet there in his pen he turns vicious and dangerous, kicking against the one who is providing for him and taking care of him. Even today we have an expression about biting the hand that feeds you. And that's what God described Israel as. You're Jeshurun. You're or like a fatted calf who is biting the hand that feeds you. And of course that hand was God. Verse 17 that I read. They sacrificed to demons. That's quoted by Paul in his discussion of idolatry in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Warning even those New Testament people all the way and us. About how important it is to distance ourselves from idolatry. In Moses' day. In Corinth long ago and in the United States of America, you listen to me today, idolatry is infested with the demonic. It always has been, 
All the way back to Moses, it's still that way in Corinth. It's still that way today. Idolatry is infested with demonic activity. So as Moses' songs brings up these other gods and their images and the demons that's infested with them, he's quick to show the divine response. God promises severe judgment on them when they turned away from him and turned they did. He calls them in verse 20, perverse children who have no faith. See, faith in the Lord is the only kind of faith that God acknowledges. If we believe in something else, God sees that as no faith at all. Faith is validated by its object. It is only valid when we believe in God, the one true God. So in today's world, this manifests itself as the growing religion of secularism, believing in what the Bible calls in 1 Timothy 6.20, the opposition of science, falsely so-called. Men turn away from the true faith of God, and they end up believing then in a whole different system of truth. And the consequences of that are everywhere in this culture today. It is being unmindful of the God who begot you. Now remember, apostasy does not refer to those who are on the outside of the faith, but those who are within. And the warning then comes to us because sometimes it's attractive. We hear the calls. We hear the the messages being proclaimed by those who believe in another God. And God says they don't have faith at all. That's not faith. They have no faith. Because they're believing in something that doesn't exist. We'll talk about that in a moment. They're believing in something that is not true. But it doesn't mean they don't call to you. They call to you young people. They call to you at school. They call to you at work. They call to you through the songs that we listen to and the programs that we're watching. And they have one simple objective to turn you away from the faith that you have learned and the truth that you've embraced. It's a very real battle that you are fighting. It was real back in Moses' day. It's still real today. So listen to what he says. Don't be unmindful of the God who begot you. Remember the God who is our rock. But then there's one more thing. As he talked about the righteousness of the rock and the rejection of the rock, he also called to them about the reality of the rock. Because you see, our our rock, and we'll see that in a moment in verse 31, their rock is not like our rock. Our rock is not like theirs. This brings up that great uh, 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 position of philosophy. Things that are different are not the same. They're God. It's not our God. Their rock is not like ours. And so he tells us some of the characteristics of, of this rock that's not really a rock at all as he contrasts that with the reality of the one true rock. Verse 28, they are a nation void of counsel. Neither is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they would rise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight? Unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them. For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judgment judges. What a great statement. Their rock is not like our rock. How foolish would it be? For these people to worship the gods of the people they would overwhelmingly conquer. When they would see one of them chase a thousand of their enemy. Why then would they turn and worship the gods of their enemies. When they see how that their gods had failed them. Their enemies themselves would give testimony to the fact that the God of Israel was one to be feared. 
They knew it. They saw it. Why then would they abandon the truth of God to turn to these false gods? Why would they turn away? The song would teach them that the vine of those who went this other way was like the vine of Sodom. Their fields were like the fields of Gomorrah. The fruit that it brings forth, God says, is bitter fruit. The wine that they make from it is poison. And not only is it poison, but it's painful like cruel venom of poisonous snakes. You see, this, this is a song, and yes, it's poetry, but the poetry has meaning, and the meaning should be clear. If we as God's people abandon the truth of God, to turn to the truth that is generated by the gods of this world, their truth, we, obey, we forsake the real truth, the, re, the reality of the true God for the falsehoods that are being peddled in our society today. If we reject our faith in God's truth to embrace the truth of the world, we need to understand what that fruit is. Remember, Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. And so God brings it up. Brought it up through Moses long ago. The fruit of these false gods and their false narratives is a bitter fruit. It makes you bitter. The wine is pure poison. And it brings on a bitterness that will bring on an agony all the way until death. Bitterness. Poison. Agonizing death. It doesn't matter what age you are. If we're talking about turning from our faith to embrace what is being peddled in our culture today. Or whether it was in Moses' day. They were doing the same thing. They had the same issue put before them. Moses called them to look and see what the fruit is of these competing belief systems. I call on you, I, like Moses, I call heaven and earth today to witness. Because both of them witness. We've got the witness of God and we've got the witness of the world around us. You look around the world today and you see the bitter fruit of what they believe everywhere. You see it on the faces and the lives of people who've turned from God or if they ever knew him. And maybe never knew him, but they've embraced the lies. And it's born bitter, bitter, agonizing, painful fruit in their lives. You see it everywhere. Everywhere in our culture. It's not a coincidence that they clamor for the legalization of weed today. Marijuana and all the other drugs that can numb the pain. And make them feel some feelings of euphoria. Take away the bitterness. What a great statement. Our rock is not like their rock. Our rock is not like their rock. Our rock is real. And he has shown himself capable of bringing joy and blessing in the lives of his people. Even in the valley. 
We sang it today. Yes, God is good. Even in persecution, God's people throughout history have sang their way into eternity as the flames lapped around their feet. Yes, they cried. Yes, God's people sometimes struggle too. But inside of us, there is a fountain of joy that nothing can take away. Why would the people of God so long ago turn away from the truth of God to follow after the gods of the people they conquered that showed themselves so inept, the gods that showed themselves so incapable of doing anything, the gods whose truth was pure poison, Brought them bitterness and agony. Why? Why would they turn away from God to turn to that? And the same question, brothers and sisters, is before us today. Why would we turn away from God's truth to embrace the alternative truth of this world? That shows itself to be the purveyor of such bitterness and agony and pain and anger. Why? Their rock is not like our rock. A couple of quick observations. Deuteronomy 32, remember, is quoted five times directly in the New Testament. Its truth is found in many other places. Obviously, the words of this song were deeply ingrained into God's people in hundreds of years. Many centuries after Moses wrote it and taught it to them, they had taught it to generation after generation after generation. They knew its words. It came up again and again and again. There's another characteristic of this psalm that we need to consider briefly. Moses said in Deuteronomy 31, 28, Gather to me all the elders of your tribes, and your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days. Because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord. To provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. You see, this song of Moses ends up in prophetic territory. The latter days. Moses' song then would conclude. How does it conclude? How does it end up? It concludes with a promise from God himself in verse 40 of Deuteronomy 32. And this is God speaking. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever. Now, you understand that if God's going to swear, he's got nobody to swear to but himself. (laughs) By the way, that sounds familiar. It's good. That's mentioned in the New Testament. Since God could swear by none greater, he swear by himself. For I raise my hand to heaven and swear by me. That's uh, kind of what it is. As I live forever, God says, if I whet my glittering sword, that's sharpened it. And my hand takes hold on judgment. I will render vengeance on my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. 
This is quoted in Romans 15 to explain how the times of the Gentiles would be brought in and God's mystery that was only hinted at in the Old Testament was brought to fulfillment in the New Testament as both Jews and Gentiles could worship God as equal participants in the New Covenant. That's far from all that Moses sang about because the song mentions God's coming time of judgment on his enemies. And so... By the way, we have this in Revelation 15. Revelation 15 begins with the appearance of those seven bowls that were filled with the wrath of God. And God saying that in those seven bowls that were about to be poured out upon the earth and humanity, in them, God would say, is filled up the wrath of God. God's wrath is about to be unpoured out. But before that judgment is poured out upon the earth in Revelation 15, something happens in heaven. Verse 3, they sing the song of Moses. Just put that in one of those things that make you go, hmm. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Why would they sing the song of Moses? Well, the song of Moses, you see, had reminded them that God was always right in what he did, does. God is true. God is a God of justice. God is just. He is never unjust or unjust. He's not a God of injustice. That God is right and his works are true and dependable. So here is God's judgment about to be poured out. And, and they sang the song of Moses. And by the way, that song spoke of the time when God would grab his sword. And let me tell you something, when God picks up that sword of judgment, a couple of things we can know for sure. Number one, he's not going to stop until he's done. And number two, there is nothing that can humanly be done to stop God's judgment once it starts. Those bowls then were about to be poured out and they're in heaven. It's those people, no telling how many of them, how many thousands of times before, they sang the song of Moses. But they also sang the song of the Lamb. Why would they do that? Because remember that as, in the, as God promised this time of judgment, he also promised a time of atonement. He said in verse 43, he will provide atonement for his land and for his people so along with the song of Moses, they sang the song of the Lamb. Aren't you glad today we can sing the song of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? God provides atonement. He's done that through Jesus Christ. And it is available, the Bible says, to whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. And you'll be saved. This is an incredible passage. I feel like I've just swam around on the surface a little bit. Splashed around a little bit this morning. But hopefully you'll study more. And hopefully this truth comes clearly through. That God is our rock. And our rock is not like their rock. And we are wise when we build our life. On the rock, the truth of Jesus Christ.
And don't turn from it. All the foolishness that's going on in our world. Don't buy it. Don't believe it. Don't turn away from the truth of God. I don't care how attractive they make it sound. I don't care what kind of names they call you. How many friends you may have to lose. How many jobs you may have to lose. Don't turn away from it. Our rock is not like their rock. Let's stand together, please.